welcome back to the Med School Tutors Podcast, your resource for high-yield tips and proven guidance to help reduce stress and give you tangible tools for success from pre-med through residency and the boards. Let's dive in. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Med School Tutors Strategies for Success on the Level in Step 1 and OMM exam. Uh, lecture this evening. My name is Dr. Joe Hansen. I'll be kind of leading you through this with Dr. Patel, just to introduce myself a little bit so I'm not a totally unfamiliar face to you guys. Uh, I've been working with med school tutors as an individual tutor for the board exams for somewhere around five years now. And in that time frame, I've worked with hundreds of students for over 5,000 hours online over camera like this to help them prepare for level one and step one exams. And so hopefully I can share with you some of the experience that I've garnered through that process of the last several years. That's me and that's why I'm gonna have some degree of authority over this material hopefully tonight. Uh, Sheila, you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is uh, Dr. Sheila Patel. I'm um, currently in Detroit, Michigan. I'm one of the DO residents. Uh, so I know where you guys are coming from. I've been there. So I'll be hopefully be able to give um, you guys insight in addition to and add stuff to what Joe has to say. So welcome everyone. And please let us know if you guys have any questions. Absolutely. So uh, just to kind of jump in and talk about things before we go towards the academic material here, just to let you know who we are, generally speaking, uh, Med School Tutors is a one-to-one -one peer online tutoring company that specializes in helping students get into medical school, do well in medical school, and then thrive beyond medical school. So everything from pre-med through residency is going to be in the purview of what our excellent tutors at Med School Tutors do. We've been around for over 15 years, and we've got med students, residents, and even attendings on our roster to help you guys do anything and everything when it comes to medical school. That includes DOs, MDs, everything in between, essentially. So if you guys are interested in having a mentor help you guide through this process of getting through medical school, uh, please feel free to reach out. We'll tell you more about ourselves again towards the end of our conversation this evening. So just to kind of give you, give you guys an idea of what we're going to talk about, the first thing is, is we're going to talk about practice assessments, scores on these exams, what we need to pay attention to, and how helpful they can be in guiding us towards what score you'll get on the real thing. We'll then talk about the resources you can use for level one and step one preparation and how those things hybridize together and how we would pull in specific ancillary resources in order to make sure you're as best prepared as possible as you go towards the exam while avoiding resource below. We'll also talk about optimizing our use of some of these resources, which includes UWorld predominantly. So we'll talk about how to approach questions and practice questions and question banks. Uh, we'll talk about how to avoid mistakes in our planning process for developing a strategy for approaching your overall study period. And then we'll kind of tilt towards talking about OMM a little bit towards the end of our session, talking about a practice question OMM and how to incorporate it into the study strategy that you do develop. And finally, we'll wrap up answering your questions. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into things. Um, Sheil, when you're working with students, uh, what do you usually tell them about their first practice assessment scores when it comes to like their worries and fears about that? It's scary to do the first test because it gives yeah. you a number and we always go by the numbers. But the first test, I always tell my students that it's a baseline. It's going to tell you where you stand, what do you know, and what you have to work on. So it never is a number that should, you know, make you less confident about your future plans. Uh, it should be the it should be your baseline to guide you what your future goals are. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll jump in to add too that when we're taking that first practice assessment, it's usually towards the beginning of a study period. And so because it's right at the start of when you might be spending like 
several weeks or a couple of months preparing for these exams, we're going to necessarily expect that it's lower than the performance that you'll get on the real exam. And so I'd really encourage you to take any MBME or COMSA score that you get at the study, beginning of your study period and use that as your baseline from which to launch into your preparations moving forward. Generally speaking, can help you to identify where your weak areas might be if you have particular strengths and weaknesses that manifest as you go through these practice tests. But overall, it gives you a place from which you can work and it gives you kind of a solid baseline that you can kind of improve upon going forward. It also can help you to kind of gauge your overall uh, target score on the exam. Uh, and as much as we would like to know what our target score is gonna look like after one practice test, it's worth keeping in mind, while it gives you a sense of where you're at at the moment, the entire goal here is for you to launch into a stronger score from there. And for that reason, this kind of helps you to recognize how much work you'll need to do to reach your goal. It doesn't prevent you from reaching any goals or anything like that. Nothing is cut off from you no matter what your first practice test looks like, but it helps you to identify the amount of studying that you're going to need to do in order to ramp that score up. Uh, and in particular, your step one score really is going to be determined mostly by the amount and quality of studying that you do in your dedicated study period. And so even if we get something that's a little pessimistic to start with, which we all do when we're first taking our first practice assessment, try not to let that worry you too much. Uh, anything else to say about these uh, practice tests before we move on, Shil? Um, No, no, I totally agree with everything you said. You know, just take it, close your eyes, <laughs> read, take it, and then use that as your goal for future planning. Yeah, and I'll emphasize too, uh, I know that everybody this evening will be thinking about taking a hybrid of level one and or step one here when it comes to taking these big exams. Generally speaking, we're going to recommend that you utilize as many practice tests as you can get a hold of. And because there's a relatively small number of ComSafe practice assessments for level one, it is worthwhile to utilize NBME practice assessments, UWorld self-assessments, and things that are generally geared towards step one, even in the preparation cycle for level one. So for anybody who's getting a little anxious about thinking like, what's an NBME? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I thought I was supposed to use the ComSafe's you would anticipate hybridizing the utility of both types of practice assessments, no matter what your study strategy or study period might look like. So when we say first NBME here, we mean first NBME and or first ComSA practice test, but we would probably end up incorporating both into a level one strategy for studying. On that note, we should kind of talk a little bit about how we can prepare for the complex exam uh, within the strategy of studying for step one or even without studying for step one. So Sheila, you wanna run through uh, what we should make sure we prioritize as we're preparing for the COMLEX level one exam. Um, so when it comes to COMLEX, what I tell my students, what I have done myself is using UWorld. UWorld's questions are really, really good and they put a really nice baseline as to what you're gonna do, what you're gonna read, what the questions are gonna be, what first order, second order questions you're gonna see in the test. And then to add on to UWorld, every time you get a question wrong or a question right, add on to first aid or vice versa, add first aid to UWorld. Because both of them have a lot to add and both of them are gonna have things that the other one doesn't have. And then um, on top of that, you know, UWorld and first aid doesn't have OMM, which is a very integral part of Comlex. So that's when it comes in that you need to do either ComBank or ComQuest because they will give you exposure to OMM questions. And, you know, when you are taking any kind of board exams, the most important things you can do is expose yourself to as many questions as you can, because that will help you feel more prepared for the exam because you know what kind of questions are going to be asked. Um, and then also, you know, a couple things that we talk about is um, if you decide to do UWorld, at least one complete pass 
or more, we recommend more than one. And then if you're gonna add on to com, like com like specific question banks, such as ComBank, ComSay, um, ComQuest, definitely do all OMM questions. I know that each of the banks at least have 200 to 250 questions, which are plenty. And then you will get other questions in addition to other resources, which we'll talk about later. I don't know, and did I miss anything, Joe? No, I think you nailed it. And I think the, the key thing to take away here is that we should anticipate that level one preparation looks almost identical to step one preparation with the addition of the OMM material. That's obviously not going to be present in first aid and U world and other resources that were originally designed for step one preparation, which is why we need to start incorporating other resources that give us that OMM material, which is a substantial subfraction of what you're going to see on the actual level one exam. For that reason, and I just want to emphasize this too, while we have other question banks online specifically for the preparation of OMM material, it does not necessarily mean we have to cover those things in full. And so hybridizing our approach here means using what's useful for OMM in order to prepare for the level one exam, but also keeping in mind that mainly the resources for step one and level one overlap, overlap quite substantially, except for that one subject area. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and dive into talking about the major resources you should expect to utilize as you prepare for step one or level one. And right off the bat, our primary resources are going to be first aid and UWorld. We have to use these resources in any reasonable strategy for preparing for level one and or step one would incorporate both of these, trying to use them to their fullest extent. Uh, in addition to that, you'll notice we've incorporated ComBank and or ComQuest on this slide to let you guys know that the adequate preparation for level one would also incorporate looking at OMM material, which means using practice questions for OMM. This is not to say that we would expect you to complete UWorld, ComBank, and ComQuest. That's way too many practice <laughs> questions. Please do not try to do that. But instead, we would try to complete all of UWorld, a full review of first aid, and then incorporating on top of that a review of either ComBank or ComQuest for the utility of looking through the OMM questions that they have in there. So a uh, full study strategy would, would definitely incorporate the use of each of these resources, or at the very least, definitely UWorld, definitely first aid, and then the OMM questions from one of ComBank or ComQuest. You could, of course, do additional questions, and that means using other question resources like AMBOSS or Kaplan or using extra questions from ComBank, but this would be the core set of material that you would make it your goal to complete is a full pass through UWorld First Aid and the OMM subsections in either ComBank or ComQuest. In addition to those things, we would strongly recommend that you have a primary resource on hand when it comes to all of our major subjects on the exam. So typically for students that I work with, I'll suggest that they utilize something for pathology, something for microbiology, something for physiology, and something for uh, pharmacology as well. And so that generally means using something like our pathoma text and videos online, which is the gold standard for pathology these days, along with something like sketchy micro or sketchy pharmacology. The sketchy medical material is quite good for looking at micro and pharmacology. And then BRS physiology is one of the gold standards we typically use for physio. There are other resources you might anticipate utilizing instead of BRS, um, in particular Boards and Beyond, which is a website with the video content kind of similar to Pitoma, but for everything is a good resource to use for that. The idea is that it doesn't particularly matter which resource you're using, but choose one resource for each major topic to run through alongside your perusal of First Aid and UWorld. Uh, in addition to that, you should probably have a resource for OMM review. Uh, in particular, the OMT review book is pretty good. Uh, Sheila, anything to add about that in particular? 
Um, no, I just wanted to add on to that saying that this OMT review book by Severisi, it's uh, one of the like pretty much an overview like this BRS physiology would be or, um, you know, the uh, sketchy version of uh, the OMT because it goes over all the high yields and it also has questions at the end of each chapters. Uh, which are very like one-liner questions, but they're a good review of what you just read in the chapter. So this was my go-to book before I was uh, preparing, and this is what I recommend to my students because um, it's it's a good review in addition to the questions you're going to have. Awesome. Thanks for adding that in. Um, I also want to mention, by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier in our conversation. You might find either of us glancing over to the side from time to time, looking at questions that you guys submit to us and maybe even responding to them. So I apologize if it appears that sometimes my gaze is wandering over off camera here. If you guys do have any questions, by the way, feel free to pipe up and send them in to us. You can send questions to us via our chat box, which is located right here uh, along the way. So if anything pops up that you have a particular concern or question about, feel free to just like send that question our way and we'll try to incorporate into our conversation. Um, so talking about these resources and how best to utilize them now, generally speaking, our strategy here is going to be to layer these resources best as possible to get as much as we can out of them. Now, typically what that means for students that I work with will mean going through the entire set of material that we have here during a dedicated study period that might be a couple months long, going through one major organ system at a time. The idea would be that you are able to go through the subsection and first aid, perusing for any weak areas in that particular organ system, say cardiology. Then you do the cardiovascular questions in UWorld in order to do your best to kind of like find out where your weaknesses are and what you still have left to learn. And then you supplement that on a daily basis by utilizing Thoma or Sketchy or Boards and Beyond or BRS Physiology and these other resources that we have that give us primary material to fill in the gaps. The goal here is that we're seeing things in every angle that we possibly could. The general review of the high yield stuff from first aid, the questions that you'll get on the actual exam through UWorld, and then filling in the gaps and reading primary material again by looking at Pathoma or boards of beyond or something of that nature. This way you should be like retrieving and coding memory constantly as you're going through this material. You see a question you world and you get it wrong. You see that material in Pathoma that night and you're like, ah, right. I saw that in UWorld. Now I know this thing. I've retrieved that memory. I've re-encoded it. And now it's more consolidated, which means that you're going to become a master of all this material by seeing it in every light that you possibly can. Generally speaking, your goal should be to run through a full pass through the material before you sit for your exam. We'll talk about how we organize that in a little bit. But one of the reasons we do that is in order to make sure that we're seeing everything that could possibly test. So for those of you who might be a little anxious at this point right now saying like, well, I don't feel particularly comfortable with any of these resources. I haven't utilized very many practice questions. I haven't done a deep dive into first aid or I haven't fully covered Pithoma yet. That's okay because that's gonna be our goal in order to organize how we're going to do that as we move closer and closer to your guys' upcoming major exams with level one, step one. So we'll talk more about how we organize this in a bit. Anything else to say about uh, resource utilization, Sheila, or like how we would organize these together? No, I think you said it all. It, it, I would do exactly how you said it because it helps significantly to be organized and to proceed in the way we just spoke about. Cool. Um, I will add one thing in. We got a question from one of our students uh, tuning in here. What about anatomy resources? Because we didn't really describe anything specifically for anatomy. I have two answers for you here. Number one, 
anatomy is roughly 10% of our like level one or step one exam, but the anatomy that we get on the exam is mainly going to be clinically oriented. It is very rare and uncommon to get a question that would say something like name the origin or insertion of this particular muscle or the specific innervation of this random muscle that we've happened to show you here. Instead, you are much more likely to be shown a picture of a winged scapula and asked what nerve is responsible for this or what muscle is no longer innervated to allow for this long thoracic, serratus anterior, super high yield common question they ask, but doesn't really require you to know your basic anatomy lab style material because we anticipate what the high yield things are by looking at first aid and using UWorld. The practice questions that you'll get that are focused on anatomy, which is roughly 10% of the question bank, will focus on high yield clinical anatomy and the type of stuff that you're gonna see on the exam. In addition to that, for anything that you feel particularly weak in, there are some anatomy review videos in the Boards and Beyond material that you can help to supplement along with physiology, which is mainly what we're getting from Boards and Beyond. The thesis that I want to come at here, though, is that if you're anticipating utilizing Gray's Anatomy or something like Gray's for students, that is not like the real Gray's Anatomy, or something like really thick, like looking at netters again, for instance, that's probably way too much for the level of material that you're going to see for anatomy on this test. And instead, we're going to hope and anticipate that we pick up what we need from the core materials here. We do branch off to look at pathology and pharmacology and physiology by using a core resource for those because they're high yield and it's likely necessary that we do that to get questions right on the exam, it's very unlikely that you're gonna have any kind of efficient study when it comes to incorporating a primary anatomy resource to your step one studying, which is why I'm gonna generally dissuade students from pulling up an anatomy resource and planning to read it cover to cover. It's probably unnecessary. And while it may give you a point or two extra on the exam, I would argue that your time is limited and you probably would be much better served to spend that time reinvested into other practice questions or reviewing first aid and memorizing, let's say, cytochrome P450 drugs instead, which you know is gonna show up on the exam. Yeah, I 100% agree. And then any anatomy questions that we think are important for Comlex are included when you do preparation for OMT and also when you review the Savarisi book, because they ask anatomy questions in a weird form where they will ask you what's related to it or how you treat it and whatnot. So I 100% agree with Joe that uh, I also dissuade my students from reading anatomy books because it's gonna be, their time is gonna be more, a better, better spent doing something else. Yeah, exactly. And I'll point out too, that I've learned a lot having worked with students over the course of the last few years and preparing them for the exam. And part of my learning has been noticing what I did wrong when I prepared for step one. And I can tell you uh, from personal experience that trying to read dense textbooks for step one is a potentially successful strategy that is wildly inefficient. So as a big Robbins reader for step one preparation, I can tell you I wasted so many hours of my life looking at that stupid textbook, I would have been much better served utilizing something that was a little bit more dense when it comes to the relevant high yield material for the exam. And so I want to dissuade other students from making a similar mistake by diving into too many dense resources, thinking that they need to see everything that's out there, you are way better served by using the high yield materials and learning what is most likely to show up on the exam, which is why we usually advocate reviewing all of the questions in UWorld, which is over 3000 questions at this point, which is 
hundreds of hours of work and really difficult to accomplish. So you should emphasize doing that because it not only teaches you the material, but also gives you the scope of what could be on these exams. If you pair that with the ComQuest or ComBank questions for OMM, then you should have a really good lay of the land of what's testable on this thing, because there are a million other facts out there about the human body that could exist, but aren't necessarily on this test. So we're not only learning, but we're also getting a sense of what's fair game when we go through these high yield resources. Um, so just to kind of give you guys a sense of how we might modify our plan over time, as you're starting out preparing for these exams, you might anticipate that you're starting out with doing a block or two in UWorld, maybe looking at first aid to kind of get a sense of what could be asked in UWorld along the way, taking a practice assessment early on just to establish a baseline, uh, and then maybe starting to use other resources like flashcards or something like that in order to kind of like balance out your studying. As time goes on though, you really start to emphasize using practice questions as your core resource. Those of you who are going to enter into a dedicated study period sometime soon, practice questions should make up at least two thirds of your daily effort. And so if you're studying for around 10 hours per day, somewhere around six or seven hours at least should be devoted to utilizing UWorld uh, or whatever practice questions you're using, which might include ComBank, uh, so that you can get through the entire thing. That's the most time consuming resource we have. And then by the time you get to the end of your study period, at that point, you should be kind of wrapping up whatever's left in UWorld using a lot more practice questions on a weekly basis, generally, as you get to the last few weeks of preparation, and then really starting to jam in that OMM material in kind of the last couple of weeks of preparation. We'll talk a little bit more about taking step one and level one and how to like identify when to switch to using more OMM material. But generally speaking, that comes in towards the end because it won't really help for step one preparation. And so incorporating it after step one preparation would be ideal. Um, anything else to say about just our resource utilization before we talk about like strategizing and big picture scheduling, Sheila? No, I think you went over everything. That was great. Cool. All right. Uh, in that case, then, uh, as far as like developing a big picture study plan, what do you usually kind of tell your students as you're planning things out from the beginning of their dedicated study period? Um, so I, um, I usually tell them that, you know, they have to figure out, okay, let's see what, uh, what uh, organ systems I want to start with, what systems I want to start with, what systems I think are weaker with. I want them to work on their weaknesses first. So we always work on uh, maybe physiology, if that's their weakest, pharmacology, if that's their weakest. Um, and then based on that, the calendar that we put together or I put together with the help of, uh, with their input is uh, something that will focus on their weaknesses, at least, at least in the beginning of their study plan. And as time passes, it's going to include their strengths too. So that way we're not weighing more on the strengths because as a human, as a human, I want to work on something that I'm very strong in because I like to see the numbers it gives me, but we all don't want to work on our weaknesses because it definitely affects our score in your world. So um, definitely tell our students to work on stuff that they are weaker in and that will help them get to a point where they'll feel good about those subjects. Awesome, I totally agree. I would point out too that uh, establishing a study plan from the beginning also involves incorporating a study calendar or creating kind of a map of how you're going to approach things. And that means kind of like choosing something that you can put all of your daily assignments into. There are a lot of students who use something like Osmosis or Pramfighter or something like that to pre-generate a calendar. But the way that I typically usually suggest students do it is maybe create like a Google calendar or something like that or an Excel sheet where they like map out weeks or something along those lines 
personally, Google Calendar is like super easy to use and you don't really have to mess around with it too much. So I like it quite a bit for this purpose. But the idea is like choose something where you can start giving yourself daily and weekly and monthly goals and start planning out and kind of like doing the arithmetic to kind of figure out what you need to do in order to make it to your exam date. Um, what I mean by the arithmetic specifically is that if we know that we have somewhere around 3,000 questions in UWorld to complete, and we know that we can complete maybe two blocks in UWorld per day when we're really moving in our dedicated study period, that means that we can complete somewhere around 80 questions per day at a pace of maybe five or six days per week. That's about 500 questions per week, which means if I want to finish all of UWorld, I'm going to need somewhere around seven weeks to get through all of those questions. And so then you just start mathing it out. Well, I know there's like 300 questions for cardio, so that's going to take me at least three or four days. I know there's about like 200 questions in renal and pulmonary. So those guys are each going to be somewhere around two and a half days devoted to those. And you just start creating like a big picture calendar like this to kind of say, here's how I'm going to Tetris together everything and make sure that I haven't forgotten anything that I want to review. And much to Shield's point, if there's anything that's particularly a weak area for any individual student, you might wanna emphasize that by putting it towards the front of your study schedule. Alternatively, if there's something that you feel like you feel pretty solid with, maybe you put it towards the end of your study schedule and become something that you might be able to cut if you need to, as you're kind of running down to the wire and running out of time, if things do inevitably start to go slower than you want them to as you're going through your study strategy. In addition to that, pushing things like biostatistics, which is a high memory, basically know the equations style field uh, would be a good idea towards the end of your study period. Alternatively, and this is one thing that isn't totally represented on this particular calendar, but if you're a student that's preparing to take both step one and level one, the best suggestion I can make here would be to anticipate taking step one first and then having the interim period between step one and level one maybe a week or so, be the time frame in which you work on the OMM material. So maybe remove the OMM entirely from your step one preparation, learn all of the step one material, crush the step one exam, and then only have the OMM to turn around and need to complete before preparing for the level one exam. Yeah. Uh, uh, go for it, Sheila, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, so I, I totally agree that uh, we should, especially if you take step one first, the rest of the week, like put a put a week of, between the step one and the level one and use that week to nail down all the high yield for OMM because you will, 10% of level one is OMM questions. And if you get those right, those are the points uh, that you definitely have guaranteed on your level one score. Um, on the other hand, if you're not planning to take level one, uh, sorry, step one, then you can always incorporate some of your strengths that are in the scheduling time with OMM if you feel like you need to go over it. So when you're actually figuring out your schedule, it's important to know whether you think OMM will be your weakness or not. If you thought that you did not do as well during the whole first two years of um, medical school in OMM, then maybe that's something you definitely need to dedicate time to because it is 10% of your exam. Um, and uh, if you feel strongly about it, then that can be uh, something that you can put on the back burner a couple days before the exam. Completely agree. Um, I should point out too, as an MD, I haven't actually taken level one myself, so I don't have the explicit uh, experience that Sheil has when it comes to taking the exam, but I have worked with several students who have taken it, helped them craft study schedules that have been very successful on these two tests. And that is generally my recommendation to take step one first and then worry about the OMA material uh, after that so that you can take level one, usually about a week later. It's not totally necessary that you do it in that order. I have worked with students who have had difficulty scheduling both exams in that fashion and have needed to, for one reason or another, take level one first. Not the end of the world. Maybe it's 
the most ideal thing, but totally doable. If that happens to be the situation that you're in, it's okay, but you can work around it. It's just a little speed bump in the road that we got to work over. Uh, we have a question from one student asking about whether questions done in, in question banks should be done like in a mixed fashion or a systems-based review. So I'm going to preface this answer by saying there are several different paths to success here. There are smooth, straight paths. There are rocky, curvy, bendy paths that go through the woods. They all lead to the same place, success, but some of them are going to take longer to traverse. They're going to be rockier, bumpier, and less efficient. And so I myself took a pretty bumpy road to success, reading Robbins, for instance, not advisable. I would steer clear of that path. And the path that I usually suggest for students that I think is most efficient is generally to go through a systems-based review in our banks, meaning that you would do all the cardio questions over the course of a few days, then all the pulmonary questions, then all the renal questions, endocrine, gastrointestinal, et cetera, et cetera. The main idea of doing things in a system-based review is that you see everything that that system has to offer all at once. And then in addition to that, you're also going to be able to incorporate the ancillary resources that are connected to that system. Meaning you do all the questions in GI while you're looking at the physiology for material for GI, you're looking at the pathoma chapters for GI, and then you look at the sketchy pharmacology for GI over that time frame. You've now seen everything that system has to offer and you've incorporated the utilization of the ancillary resources along with that. This way you don't have to aimlessly read through Pathoma while you're doing mixed questions and feel like you're totally untethered to the material you're actually studying in UWorld. And you get to make sure that you kind of uh, correlate the material that you see in questions with what you're seeing in other resources. As I mentioned before, there's a massive benefit to seeing a question in UWorld and saying, ah, oh, man, I missed that, I didn't really understand it. And then opening Pathoma like that night and seeing that exact thing in Pathoma and be like, ah, oh, all right, like it hurts. It doesn't feel good to see that. But at the same time, you've now retrieved the memory of that topic, modified it with what you saw in Pathoma, and then re-encoded that. That is really powerful for generating durable memory for that material. And so it would be kind of a waste if we weren't utilizing some degree of systems-based review as you're going through your dedicated study period. That all being said, I've known tons of students who have used mixed review and been successful with it. It's also a viable pathway. It's not necessarily the one that I would utilize, especially if I were working on achieving a passing in average and above average score. You will inevitably find there are plenty of students that are already prepared to do well and are earning above average scores on practice assessments who might say, well, I prefer to just do mixed review now. And they're going to be successful no matter what at that point. That's generally where mixed review can kind of end up being a useful thing to do to prepare you for exam day. But keep in mind, we have lots of practice tests to give you that mixed timed question set that you're looking for. Six MBMEs, a couple of COMSAs, two year old self-assessments. All of those guys give you an opportunity for what the real test will feel like. Yeah, and mind you, if uh, you are one of those people who's able to go through UWorld a couple times, then you can always consider doing the first time when you're going through the questions as system-based. And then when you're starting to do these questions the second time, you can always mix them up because that probably will be closer to your board exam. So you'll be able to go through these questions the way they would be presented in your boards. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. And that leads very naturally into the next thing we were going to say, which is that 
if we're looking at the mathematics of like what's feasible and what's not feasible, it's simply not going to be reasonable to expect that you can complete 120 questions in UWorld every day for the next three months. I would not anticipate that's a reasonable goal. Again, I would set a strict limit at doing two blocks per day as like a nice, healthy maximum pace through UWorld. Maybe accelerating up to like two and a half blocks, 100 questions per day as you're like really close to your exam. We want to avoid burnout here, right? And we're going to burn out if we're really stressing ourselves out by going through too many questions at once. So if you look at your calendar and you say, I have 100 days until my exam and I have 3,000 questions that I want to complete, well, that makes sense that about 30 questions per day should be the pace that you're going at. But she'll mention the best recommendation we can make here is that if it's possible Seeing everything twice would be ideal, meaning going all the way through UWorld twice, reviewing all the ancillary materials twice, looking at the OMT material, the OMM questions twice. That's the gold standard. We can't always get there though. I didn't get there, tons of students don't get there. I'm not suggesting that you need that, but that's where you would reach basically the peak score possible on the test. So what you should look for right now is how would you math that out? How, can that work? How many questions can we get in there? And if it turns out that at a pace of 80 questions per day, five or six days per week, you can only get through like one and a quarter passes through your world in that time frame, that's okay. Let's make that our goal. So the purpose of what you need to do right now is establish what is reasonable. Are you currently overestimating what you can possibly do by saying, I'm gonna do you world three times. I doubt that you can if you have an exam date this calendar year. So maybe let's modify those goals. Also, give yourself some room to change your goals. You're gonna have some bad days and some better days. You're gonna to wanna to take a day off here and there and giving yourself a little bit of leeway in terms of like missing your assignments or your goals for a few days here or there is very important because nobody's gonna have perfect adherence to any study strategy they lay out to begin with. Right. Also, uh, one thing I wanna point out here is you wanna avoid burnout. Um, in particular, Sheil, any advice in terms of like stopping burnout or preventing that from happening? Uh, so first and foremost, I always tell my students to have, uh, they have fun times, you know, you need to work out, you need to go outside, go take your dog on a walk. Just doing that even a day or two before exam is not something that's going to take you away from your studying. In fact, it's going to make sure that you stay refreshed, you prevent yourself from burning out and retain all the material that you're reading. Um, in addition to that, always have days to catch up. So you're going to make a pretty uh, robust schedule um, that you will have for the week, but things happen. One day your school runs late or for some reason, you know, uh, you had to go hang out with your friends, your families, things happen. Give yourself a couple days to catch up or a day to catch up so that you don't feel you're behind when the new week comes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in addition to kind of giving yourself some leeway for entire days off, one thing I usually suggest for my students is that to me, burnout is a little bit of an issue of applying too much pressure without any kind of depressurization. So we always want to build in some regular time for relaxation. So the argument I'm going to lay out here is that even under the most strenuous studying that you're going to do, I would encourage you to spend at maximum around 12 hours per day studying. That seems to me to be the hard limit for a reasonable person to actually get studying and learning done. I know there are people out there who are anticipating 14 plus hour days. More power to you, I wish you the best of luck. I don't think I could do it myself. Uh, yeah, and so what, what we're saying is that from, you know, high performers on the exam, it's not necessary to hit that kind of ridiculous number of hours per day in order to succeed on these things. 
So with that in mind, if we do anticipate 10 to 12 hours of studying during a dedicated study period where that's your only job in life to study for this exam, then that means even sleeping somewhere around eight hours per night can anticipate that you've got somewhere on the order of four to six hours that you're not studying or sleeping. And that time should be protected as much as you possibly can. Yes, you need to go to grocery store some days, do laundry, et cetera, et cetera. But you should anticipate on a daily basis that you reserve some time to do stuff for yourself. Now that could be going to the gym, exercising, running outside. I usually would recommend going meeting a friend for a cup of coffee, going watching a movie, seeing a sporting event. Maybe some of these things aren't as possible nowadays as they used to be, but you could just binge Netflix for a few hours if that's your thing. So find some time to protect for yourself on a daily basis to make sure that we don't become overpressured as you're going through this process. It's not simply the raw number of hours you study, but the number of hours you study without any kind of pressure release as you're working through this stuff. So regular daily breaks is very important. But then also taking entire days off to see family members, to see friends and things of that nature is going to be really key as well. Don't cut yourself off from your friends here. You're going to need their help to kind of get through this part because this is usually the worst part of medical school, by the way, if you guys haven't already gathered that. <laughs> After you finish this part, you're going to actually work in the hospital ostensibly and go on clinical rotations, which is so much more rewarding than the stuff that you're doing now. And I would presume that most of you didn't get into medical school just to do college 2.0 and study in a box all day. So as dark as things might get as you're studying for this exam for several hours per day, keep in mind, we're doing it so that we can go work with patients and help them clinically in the future, which is far more rewarding. Uh, still very stressful if you might get yelled at by some attendings, but nevertheless, <laughs> just way better overall than what you're doing now. So we just got to get through this part. Anything to add to that, show? No, you said it wonderfully. Like breaks are very, very important. Just, you know, you need to tell yourself, you need to remind yourself just because you're taking breaks, you're not cheating yourself out of studying. In fact, you're doing yourself a favor and making sure that everything that you've spent the last 10 hours on, 12 hours on is retained in your brains and you're giving yourself a fresh start. Because if you don't get sleep, if you don't have me time if you don't spend time with family all this uh studying will not be worth it especially because you will get burned out towards the end yeah absolutely and i like that perspective even from the most mercenary gunner angle you need that time to better make your efficiency work as you're studying later so taking breaks is actually the thing that you would do in order to make yourself do better on the exam not just maintain your sanity which is also a reasonable goal to set for yourself too in this process so uh, we have a question from a student asking about, well, what about other question banks? Like what about utilizing uh, Kaplan or some other question bank like Amboss? Um, to that, I would say there's a limited amount of time that you have for this exam. And we know that UWorld is the best question bank available. If you have not completed UWorld and you're nearing the point in time where you're gonna go to your dedicated study period or you're going to be within a few months of your exam, it would be your best resource to utilize. It is the most important one to use. And for that reason, I can't in good conscience say that we have any room or space for any ancillary question banks. I'll point out that not only is UWorld the best resource for this, it most closely models the exam and generally gives you a good perspective of what's gonna be on the exam in terms of the range of topics they typically like to cover and are high yield, uh, but they continuously add to it. And so this is a bit of a weird spot that we're in right now where there's over 3,000 questions in UWorld and growing. It didn't used to be that way. There used to be less than 3,000 questions in UWorld. And so you might find some 
older physicians uh, recommending to you that maybe you supplement your learning with other question banks. Maybe four or five years ago, that was a reasonable thing to potentially think about. Even then it was a little shaky, but now it's just untenable. There's no way to incorporate multiple question banks apart from maybe utilizing OMM questions from uh, the ComBank or ComQuest. And so for that reason, I would strongly suggest that if you haven't finished UWorld two full times, set aside other question banks and utilize UWorld until you've done so. And if you can't finish UWorld two full times before your exam, which is okay, one full pass is what I would recommend strongly, two full passes is ideal, then just work towards what you can accomplish there. But unless you finish that question bank twice, you do not need any other question bank. You can state that with a high degree of confidence. You can do very well on both level one and step one without any Kaplan or AMBOSS or USMLE-RX. You really just don't have time to do anything else if you're really going to dive into your world deeply. Yeah, I want. I agree. Um, I always tell my students, and something to note to everyone that's here is there is something known as too many resources when you prepare for your boards. Um, you know, when you start thinking of your dedicated study time, assign the, the resources you're going to stick to and where we come from. We have been there. We have taken this exam and we strongly recommend you world because it works for all the reasons that Joe mentioned. Um, we strongly recommend to use you world and first aid because we see how they work hand in hand. Um, and then you need to limit the resources, including the primary and the secondary. And the purpose to do that is when you're going to be going through this dedicated study period, you're going to talk to people, you're going to talk to your coworkers, you're going to talk to your roommates, and you're going to realize everyone's using different. And while you're going through it, you're going to think, oh, I want to use it. Oh, I want to try this. And it's very, very tempting. But if you don't assign yourself the primary and the secondary resources, you're going to be all over the place and your whole plan for the next two months before your board, it's going to be um, destroyed. So please know that there is something known as too many resources. Absolutely. And uh, what Shields describing is the fear of missing out, seeing a bunch of your colleagues utilizing resources that maybe you have not incorporated into your study strategy and then becoming very anxious that maybe you need to change your study strategy to, to incorporate this new thing. There's going to be tons of people doing tons of different things than you throughout this process. Once again, I have to reiterate several paths to success here. Once you've selected your path, if it is working for you and you feel as though you're learning and gaining something from it, you shouldn't anticipate deviating from that path just because you happen to bump into somebody else at the crossroads. So just stick with the plan that works if it's working. And if it's not working for you, then that's time to reassess and determine whether we need to switch gears or change things up or utilize different resources or kind of change our study schedule on a daily basis. So your schedule will change. There are such a thing as too many resources. Allow yourself to be adaptable, but don't be too adaptable. Don't switch resources on a daily basis. And just because you saw one person using a resource doesn't mean that you need to also incorporate it yourself. Right. So um, when it comes to utilizing UWorld specifically, one thing I wanna emphasize about UWorld that a lot of students tend to fall into the trap of is that UWorld is a learning tool. Is a resource for you to learn in the same way that a textbook is a resource for you to learn. And in the same sense that you would not necessarily think of like a textbook as like a resource that you have to test yourself on, meaning you shouldn't be mad at yourself if you flip the page in a textbook and you don't already know what's on the next page. You really shouldn't be mad at yourself if you move to the next question in UWorld and you don't already know the answer to it. We're using UWorld to learn this stuff, which means using UWorld any time in your second year of medical school is probably a good idea as a primary learning resource. You don't have to overemphasize it at this point in the year. If it is your second year, it's probably time to jump on board and use it. If you have your level one or step one exam planned for sometime in the next like three to six months or so, 
But the idea here is that we're learning from it and we're not assessing ourselves based on the score. I know it's super tempting. You open up the question bank and right at the front, it says, here's how you're doing. Here's your percentage compared to your peers. Do not pay attention to that data. That data is not important for you. You can use practice assessments as your diagnostic tool. The UWorld interface itself is best for learning. You can miss every question UWorld. As long as you're learning from those questions as you're doing it, you're putting yourself in a better position to do well on the exam. So as tempting as it is to look at UWorld and say, how well am I doing today? Like, am I actually like doing well enough to succeed on the exam? That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to teach you as much as possible so that your next practice assessment can give you a slightly better score and hopefully point you in the right direction towards succeeding and earning a high score on the actual exam. Mm -hmm. uh, anything to add to that, Sheil? No, you said it really well. Um, use it as a learning tool. Don't get bogged down by the scores and how you're doing compared to your peers. Cool. So on that note, then, I'll just add, too, that uh, if you do find yourself in a position where you can finish all of you world and you have somewhere around two or three weeks after completing it before your exam, that might be a great time for you to try to review as many of your incorrect questions as possible. One of the nice features of the question bank is that you can actually select the questions that you missed to review again. Uh, if you miss them again, they get added to your incorrect pool once more. So you can end up finding that you get lots of repeats uh, in that process. But nevertheless, it's nice to look at the questions that you had the hardest time with as you get closer and closer to the exam. So using incorrect questions might be a good way to bridge you from finishing your full pass through UWorld to your actual step one or level one exam. It's important as far as notes go in UWorld to try to like limit the number of notes that you take. I usually suggest students try their best to only write down one key idea from each question they miss in UWorld. So that means that by the time they go through the 3000 plus questions in UWorld, they've written down like over a thousand individual facts if they're writing down just one thing from each question. So you can see that doing any more than one key idea per question you miss in your note taking is gonna be overwhelming very quickly because even just one factoid 1200 times is a ton of stuff. And so one thing to emphasize here is that we usually use something called a UWorld notebook with students we work with or a UWorld journal, where the idea is that students will write down one key idea per question they miss and then plan to take a look at those key ideas at the end of the day. Let's say that you miss a question about congestive heart failure and you write down, okay, the mechanism of digoxin is sodium potassium ATPase inhibition. That evening, you look at like the you know 20 to 40 things you wrote down for that day and you say, oh, right, I remember missing that CHF question. That was silly. Moving on to the next one. And you've now created a list of individual facts you want to remember, but the facts are also tied to questions that you've just done. So you remember the whole question as you're going through that tiny list of facts. At the end of the week, you can then look at all the facts you wrote down for that week, taking about 30 minutes or so now, because now you have a couple hundred there, and try to remember as much as you can from that week and then start over the next week. The idea is that you should take limited notes. Do not rewrite all of UWorld in your notes. That is not necessary and probably a big expenditure of energy that isn't going to give you very much yield. We're going to be efficient here, so small amounts of notes are going to be important. As far as flashcards go, I would actually encourage you, if you would like to use flashcards, which isn't totally necessary but is a nice tool, use pre-generated decks. If you want to create individual small flashcards for yourself for niche topics, that's probably a good idea. But creating a robust set of flashcards for all of step one is not really a feasible goal for the limited time that you have to prepare for the exam. Yeah, I agree. Cool. With that, um, Sheila, do you want to try to run us through like what we should pay attention to as we're like looking at your question, trying, starting to try to learn as much as we possibly can from these things? Yes. One thing I did want to mention on the previous slide, hmm. uh, something else you can do if you're not into making uh, flashcards is annotating the step one book. 
So, um, you know, this is what we do. It's a, it, we're planning to do system-based, right? So if you have a cardiology question, you got the question wrong and UWorld is telling you something that the first aid section on cardiology didn't have, you can always annotate it on the side and just make a note to yourself that, hey, this is something I didn't know. This is something I should know. So that ne- that time, if you're going through first aid the next time or just reviewing first aid, at least you will see your annotations and you can go over them. Awesome. I agree. Uh, you can use first aid as a great resource to put your notes into as annotations. The one uh, backpedaling thing I would add to that is don't overdo it. Don't cover your entire page on every page of first aid with too many notes. Yeah. It can be really hard to read in that case. So there is such a thing as taking too many notes, uh, both in first aid and overall. Right. Yes. Um, okay. So um, if this was a question that I was going over with the students, the first thing that you would do is just if this was a board, a scenario, you were taking a step one question, what you would do is just read through the question, right? So this question is talking about a 55-year-old male that's alcoholic. And then, you know, when you go take the test, you have the features. And even in your world, even in the MBME, you have features to highlight, to underline. So that way, if you're going through the question, if something hits you the right way or the wrong way, you got you should either underline it or highlight it so that when you are actually trying to formulate the answer or think about the answer, at least you can come up with differentials which you can either rule in or rule out. So in this case, when you have a 55-year-old male who's alcoholic, so that's something I need to know, right? So it will tell me, okay, am I talking about congestive heart failure due to vitamin B deficiency? Am I talking about congestive heart failure due to something else? Am I talking about abdominal pain from pancreatitis? Am I talking about ARDS because the patient uh, patient aspirated? All those reasons to think about as soon as I see alcoholism, right? So then I start looking at the question more and then I go, oh, okay, they're talking about abdominal pain. Okay, let's go further. They talk about elevated serum amylase and lipase. So without even going further, I know, oh, serum amylase and lipase, it's telling me, oh, it should, it's pointing in some direction of pancreatitis. Um, so the way I like to tackle the question and I tell my students to do it is read the question entirely, go back, reread it and highlight all the important things that you think will help you answer the question. And then towards the end, you need to highlight and read what is the main part of the question. So if you look at the last part, it's asking which of the following autopsy findings is most likely seen. Um, so this question, even though they give you a bunch of information about patient with alcoholism, had pancreatitis, in the end, they're going in the direction of acute uh, respiratory distress syndrome, which is the ARDS. They're trying to tell you that the patient was ventilated, but it's not ventilating. So then they're trying to ask you, what's the physiology? So this question, even though it's giving you a bunch of verbiage, in fact, is just asking you, what's the physiology that caused this patient to be ARDS? So then I would look at the answer choices and I would figure out, okay, which one can I rule out? Which one can I rule in? And then based on that, you would figure out what the answer choice would be. I don't know, do you wanna add something else to that? That, uh, that sounds perfect. Uh, the only thing I would simply add is that one thing that's really useful that we've kind of mimicked here on this slide without directly importing things from a specific question bank is that the underlines here represent like highlights that we would use in a question. Mm-hmm. And I would really strongly encourage you to both utilize the highlighting tool uh, in the question bank you're using, namely UWorld, as well as the strikeout function for answer yeah. choices. So mark the ones that you don't think are totally possible or are impossible by striking those answers out. Use the highlighting tool to your advantage to make sure that you're 
bringing out the most important key points of the question so that you're able to look back at the question again later and say, okay, alcoholic, abdominal pain, amylase, and lipase. Those highlights alone tell me the entire story of this guy's pathology. I know that I'm looking at pancreatitis if those are the three only things they gave me. So make it your goal to highlight the discrete pieces of information you would need if you were trying to just like telephone somebody what the idea of this question was. So if you just told a random medical student, alcoholic with abdominal pain and elevated amylase and lipase, hopefully by the time they're ready for step one or level one, they'd be able to say pancreatitis just on the basis of those few words. So make that your goal, which is a never ending goal. You always get better and better at kind of identifying the key points and doing these highlights, but make it your goal to start highlighting as efficiently as possible as you're utilizing these practice questions yourself. Um, excellent. All right. So Let's pivot away from talking about UWorld and step one materials and start talking about what would be necessary to complete the preparation for level one, which means OMM materials. So Sheil, what is OMM? Um, so as we have talked about here, OMM, also known as osteopathic manipulative technique, osteopathic manipulative medicine, is pretty much a therapeutic application of man manual pressure or force, which means that you're doing manipulations to help align the spine align, uh, use the body mechanics to help with the patient's pathology. So what I mean by that is a patient is complaining of neck pain, you palpate, you diagnose, and you see, okay, maybe the spine isn't aligned well. So let me align the spine or let me do some stretching. Let me do some straining. Let me see what can help the patient. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it is actually 10% of the complex exam. And they're very easy points if you prepared for it adequately and ahead of time and were anticipating the type of questions they're going to ask. Awesome. So let's kind of talk about how these questions would be formulated on the actual exam. In particular, there's usually about three ways that you're going to see questions that incorporate OMM material. Uh, the first way is that you're going to see some kind of like vignette or story about pathology with an explanation of OMM findings and a question about the OMM manipulation you would do. And so this is probably the most necessary study part of OMM because you need to actually answer the question with an OMM thing. And the idea here is that they'll say, you know, this person's coming in with this particular diagnosis, what manipulation would you do? Or what would you expect to find on examination this patient? For that reason, it is necessary to study the OMM stuff. You can't really get away without studying it. That being said, there are a couple of other types of OMM questions where they might just sneak in some OMM details that point towards diagnosis, but are not totally necessary for the diagnosis. In that case, you might find that they tell you about specific OMM findings that are gonna be associated with like say appendicitis, but you also already see that this person has rebound tenderness and a positive Bernie's point, and you kind of already know that they have appendicitis even without it. It's helpful, but not necessary to have the OMM material for those questions. So it's beneficial, but again, not totally necessary in all cases, which is why there will be several questions with extra or ancillary OMM findings. And then there might be just some other questions that directly ask you something about OMM point blank straight to it. So for that reason, in many cases, you're going to have to actually study this stuff to know it. You couldn't simply sneak into the exam without preparing for it, which is why we strongly encourage that we dedicate some time towards preparing for this OMM stuff. So Sheil, what would you suggest students utilize to make sure that they're not missing out on 10% of their exam before they walk into it for level one? Um, so 
Specifically for OMM, definitely the Severisi book. And I've put in the third edition and the most recent, the fourth edition. I just find the third edition special because that's the one I use. So I'm used to the cover cover uh, appearance of that book. Uh, but they come out, they have come out with the new edition. The one on the right that you see is the most latest edition in my um that I know of for the Severisi, which is the OMT review book. Again, it's a very compact review. It goes over everything that you have learned about OMT, OMM over the last two years in a fashion that you can not only use to memorize, which you will need to for some aspects, but also understand how to diagnose and how to treat. And then in addition to that, to put that into perspective, you could potentially do some comm bank questions and comm quest questions. As I said, these com uh, these uh, question banks are pretty good about making sure that they are weighted heavily on OMM questions because um, they know that we do need those question and exposure. So um, at least 150 to 200 from what I remember. Um, so it's definitely a very well overall view, which will give you exposure to every single OMM question, if not all of it, um, especially if you do combine the OMT review book and the ComBank. And then at the end, there's also the ComSay and the MBOME question banks, which are available. Um, again, very rare and hard to come by, but they have them available out there where you can potentially purchase one or have them have uh, get access to one and take one. Uh, but using the question banks and the review book will be the way to go. Awesome. Um, in general, uh, how else would we study for this? What are the high yield topics are there that we would focus on for OMM stuff? Um, so some of the OMM stuff that I do remember, and I um, remember not only from my boards, but also remember from the fact that I've taught students is uh, cranial motion, the craniosacral motion. Uh, no matter where you go or what, whether you take step one, step two, or level one, level two, level three, you will see one craniosacral question. Um, if not more, definitely one. I've also seen several viscerosomatic and Chapman point questions. So those are something that I definitely made point to review before I went in or the day before the exam so that I knew and had them fresh in my mind. Um, viscerosomatics are something that you can also use and not only, you know, not only as far as the um, step one is concerned because you are using pretty much um, the viscerosomatics to figure out the dermatomes, the myotomes. So that helps. And the Chapman points are also something that they will have at least a couple questions. Um, so that's why we call these the high yield topics, because if you review them before the test, you are guaranteed you'll get at least some of the questions right. Awesome. And then in general, what would be the topics that you would memorize like the back of your hand in preparation for this test? So going into the, I've, I've, we have written down some of the topics here, but knowing that I had to take step one tomorrow, today I would open the book and review, um, sorry, I keep saying step one, I mean level one, I would review the Chapman points, I would definitely review the counter strain points, again, these are points, if you know them, the, uh, they will give you a ton of information and the answer choice is going to be which of the following counter strains you will use to help relieve this patient's symptoms. If you know where the counter strain points are and how to treat them, those are the questions that you know you will ace. Um, also something that I've seen them ask in every single levels um, and also I've heard students talk about it are the ribs. Um, oh, Comlex loves ribs. So they will ask you how the rib handle and the pump handle movement works of the rib, which ribs will work as pump handle, which ribs will work at bucket handle. And then they will also ask you to um, figure out which muscle group uh, help with movement of which ribs. 
And I've seen those questions highlighted pretty well on uh, both the question banks um, so that they help you in um, preparing uh, for the final thing. All right, awesome. With that in mind then, let's do some interactive work here. So everybody get ready to type into the chat. We're gonna work through a practice problem together. And so to that end, I'm going to end up reading through this one. I'm gonna ask you guys to help me find the correct answer to this problem. So I'll read through this starting from the top. We have a 32 year old obese female presenting to your office with generalized abdominal pain. She's non-compliant and groans when trying to obtain a history. So we've got no medical history to take whatsoever. Our vital signs include a temperature of 98.4, a blood pressure of 134 over 76, and a heart rate of 90 per minute with a respiratory rate of 18. Mildly hypertensive and borderline tachycardic, but otherwise not really very revelatory here. Physical exam shows an obese female in moderate distress who displays guarding of her abdomen, so some kind of abdominal complaint, and a rubbery nodule palpated in the seventh intercostal space on the right. They want to know what's most likely to be present in this patient. So using our OMM knowledge here, type into the chat if you would uh, kind of help me out here a little bit. What's the most likely answer here based on that physical assessment? Guys, a couple seconds to try to respond to me here. All right, we got a couple people already sending in answers. All right, keep them coming. More people, please try to give me your best answer here. Sorry for waking you guys up towards the end of our conversation here to get you to interact. So we got a couple of students that are sending in their best answer here. And the idea is that we're going to end up using is Chapman's points to identify where we are. And specifically, when we're looking at the Chapman's points here, we have generally speaking, the seventh rib representing the liver or gallbladder or the pancreas, depending on exactly where we are. Now, given that this person has a Chapman's point on the right side around the seventh rib, uh, and it's in the seventh intercostal space, which is below the rib, I would generally anticipate that we're looking more along the lines of pancreatitis in this person. It's worth pointing out that generally speaking, a question that's a little bit more straightforward without totally relying on the OMM material might give you ancillary findings in order to help you identify this. But keep in mind, generally speaking, if somebody's coming in with say cholecystitis, which is what a couple of our students had said in our chat here, uh, we would usually end up having a positive Murphy sign and specifically right over quadrant tenderness that would be more elicitable on physical exam. So this is an example where knowledge of the OMM material will be completely necessary in order to earn the correct answer probably not very likely that we could answer this correctly simply based on a non-compliant woman moaning in pain with generalized abdominal distension. So uh, this is where it's gonna come in handy if they do ask a question like this, which is totally fair game on the real exam. Uh, so last minute OMM tips, Sheila, what else would you say before we move on? Um, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Again, you know, consider, and this is just, again, a recommendation, consider the step one first, and then level one a few days, maybe a week later. What I recommend, what I have done previously is schedule them three to five days apart and use those three to five days to just go over OMM. You know, you worked really hard to prepare for step one. So your level or your uh, knowledge for um, all the other stuff is gonna be very, very accurate. And it's gonna be very good considering you just took step one. So focus that time on OMM read the Severici, which is the OMT review book. Um, um, again, you know, this is the one that I stand by because this is the one I have used. This is the one that I've recommended. You may have other options, which is totally fine. 
but read a review book that talks about OMM, high yield OMM topics at least once, preferably twice, just because it will go over all the details really well. Um, do the questions on OMM. And um, again, you know, these are easy, but high yield points. And if you prepare for it, well, these are your points, so go for it. And then, um, you know, we are here in this process if you need us uh, to help you with anything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're about to answer any questions that you guys have for us about anything and everything level one or step one related. Uh, as we lean into doing so, let me just tell you a little bit more about us and how we might be able to help you at Med School Tutors. Uh, generally speaking, uh, Med School Tutors is a one-to-one -one tutoring service, but our primary role is forming mentorship pairs with students that we're working with. We help from everything from preparing for the MCAT through getting through medical coursework, preparing for level one, step one, shelf exams, step two, level two, residency applications, and then board exams even beyond that. And so if there's ever any impediment that you reach in your medical education and you could use the help of an expert who's been through the process and understands the situation that you're in, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, I generally tend to think of this as more of a mentorship program than a direct tutoring service insofar as we usually develop very long-term bonds with the students that we're working with. I still receive text messages and updates from students that I've worked with two and three years ago who have now moved on to residency, kind of giving me updates on their clinical practice and their life and things along those lines, or before the pandemic, if they were visiting the area that I'm living in to grab lunch or something like that. So the idea is that we're here to help you in every way that we can to make it through medical school. And for the most part, uh, our main role is to help you learn the material because we are experts in our field and we all have very strong scores on the exams that we've taken. But if you do need help in any way, shape or form, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, in addition to that, if forming a long-term commitment and developing a relationship with a tutor is not something you're totally prepared to do just yet, we also do short-term one-time consults with students just to kind of get them in the right direction in terms of preparing a study strategy or schedule for their exams or otherwise organizing and putting together an application for residency. So whatever your needs are, if you feel like somebody with expertise in this field could help you out, please feel, to re feel free to reach out. Uh, you can see our email, uh, website, and phone number at the bottom there of the screen, and I'll bring those up in just a minute. In particular, I want to emphasize that VO students choose MST because our tutors are all very strong and have scored over 250 on step one and or over a 630 on level one. Uh, we've worked with tons of students like yourself. We've worked with hundreds and probably thousands of students at this point to get them through these exams. And in particular, we've helped at least 500 students from several different DO schools to get through the level one exam and level two exam. So we have experience in working with somebody with your background. So please feel free to reach out if we can help you out. Um, in addition, if you guys could help us out before we answer any questions here, uh, go ahead and fill out our survey before you guys dip out tonight. It'll only take like 20, 30 seconds, less than the time it takes to do one question in your world. Give us some feedback if there's anything we could do to kind of improve this for future talks that we hold online like this. Uh, with that being said, we have uh, time now to answer some of your questions, anything about level one or step one. So feel free to send those in if you have them. I will start out while we're waiting with a question that I got from a student a little earlier. So I apologize for the delay in answering this, but somebody had asked, uh, we mentioned flashcards. What decks would we recommend in terms of utilizing flashcards for step one or level one? In particular, it's very difficult to get away from utilizing Anki as a flashcard resource these days. There are several different comprehensive decks, Zonki, Onking, individual decks like Pepper, LOL, Nauticop, that kind of stuff. Um, generally speaking, 
searching out one of those like big comprehensive decks is usually the best thing to do. But I would emphasize that your strategy in using flashcards should not be to complete all of On King or Zonkey or anything along those lines. It should be to utilize flashcards for a certain amount of time on a daily basis. Set aside 30 minutes to use Zonkey flashcards, but don't anticipate getting through 30,000 flashcards while you're studying for step one or level one. That's way too much time to commit specifically to the flashcard utilization. Keep in mind that no matter what flashcard set you use, it's always just recombining and redistributing material from first aid, UWorld, Boards and Beyond, Sketchy, Pithoma, all the resources you're already using. And so by using those other resources, you're already getting everything that you would be getting from flashcards. The flashcards are just there to help you get spaced repetition on that material. For that reason, I would strongly discourage you from trying to get a full comprehensive cover of every flashcard in a deck and instead cover what you need to on a daily basis by covering a small amount, like 30 minutes at a time. Okay, well, I think we might've answered everything that you guys have. So Sheila, any final thoughts uh, for our students before we close out tonight? Um, no, just you know, start early, um, have a plan. And again, make sure you at least take a baseline MBME so that tells you what your weaknesses are, what your goals are, what you need to work on. Um, and then make a schedule, try and adhere to stretch schedule, but make sure you assign yourself several breaks during the day, um, also during the week. So you preserve your sanity and do not get a burnout. Um, and then, uh, um, yeah, good luck. And we're here if you guys need us. Yeah, I just wanna point out again, this is probably the most difficult part of medical school. You've gone through the first two years made to this point, and now you're kind of almost on your own to study for these massive exams. And sometimes it can feel like you're a little aimless and you don't know exactly what to do. Hopefully we laid a little bit of groundwork for you guys to follow in developing a strategy and plan. But keep in mind, this is probably the hardest part of medical school. Even pre preparing for level one, or sorry, excuse me, even preparing for level two or step two is usually not as stressful as the level one, step one process. And so for that reason, I just wanna encourage you guys, hang in there. It does get brighter at the end of this tunnel as you start to work in the hospital and work clinically and actually do medicine at that point. Uh, and it will be less and less focused on you studying in a study room that doesn't have sunlight or anything like that for a long period of time. So hang in there, keep working hard. This is worthwhile because getting a good score on level one and step one, so long as step one remains a graded exam, uh, is really useful for your residency application. But I also wanna emphasize too, these are just three digit numbers they're throwing at you and they don't encapsulate who you are or who you will be as a physician or clinician. So yes, you have to study hard and prepare hard for these tests but I'm gonna strongly discourage you, no matter what score you get, even if it is very, very high, try not to put your entire ego on these numbers. They're yeah. just numbers and you're gonna forget about these guys in the same way that you're probably not too uh, invested in your MCAT score right now and probably not too invested in your SAT score or ACT score or anything like that. Step one kind of becomes that in the future too. It's important, it's useful, you gotta work hard on it, but it's not the most important thing in the world. It's not the only thing in the world, so. Do your best, study really hard, but at the same time, I have no doubt that you all be excellent clinicians, so I'll look forward to encountering and working with you guys on the ward someday. Otherwise, good luck on your test, and we'll see you in the next one. We hope this was helpful and that it took some of the guesswork out of the equation for you. If you have any questions or would like one-on-one -on -one tutoring, get in touch with us via our website, medschooltutors.com, via email at hq at medschooltutors.com, or give us a call, if you're old school like that, at 212-327-2000.
If you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and review us on your podcast app. And if you want more helpful, free information, visit our blog, check us out on social media at MedSchoolTutors, or visit our forum at usmletutors.com. Thanks for listening. Be well.